everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, a weekly half hour of storytelling and conversation about mythology and how it informs our lives today. I'm your local mythologist, Catherine Savela. I live here in Joshua Tree, and I'm pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. Today I'm going to tell the story of Abu Kasim's slippers. I found this Persian tale in a collection by Henrik Zimmer that was edited by Joseph Campbell, and the collection is called The King and the Corpse, Tales of the Soul's Conquest of Evil. This book contains another one of my favorite, favorite stories, The King and the Corpse, and I plan to tell that one too over the next couple of weeks because it's a bit longer. But I just love uh, this story about Abu, and I hope that you enjoy it too. Now, Tales of the Soul's Conquest of Evil has a rather ominous sound, and I don't want to give anything away before I tell this story, so I will context it with a quote from Sri Aurobindo that I came across recently. Quote, Always you will find that within you the shadow and the light go together. It is up to you to know how to utilize the one to realize the other. End quote. So I'll say that again. Always you will find that within you the shadow and the light go together. It is up to you to know how to utilize the one to realize the other. Understanding and using the awareness that we are all very complex packages of good and bad, positive and negative, and that our perspectives on which things about us or our world are good or bad, are all part of our own psyche, is the key to psychological maturity and an essential part of spiritual development down any path. And like any important life lesson, we can turn to myths and stories to help us master it. So, on with the story of Abu Qasim's Slippers. Who knows the story of Abu Qasim and his slippers? The slippers were as famous, yes, proverbial, in the Baghdad of his time as the great miser and money grubber himself. Everybody regarded them as the visible sign of his unpalatable greed. For Abu Qasim was rich and he tried to hide the fact, and even though the shabbiest beggar in town would have been ashamed to be caught dead in such slippers as he wore, they were so cobbled together and stained, really bits and pieces held together with nails and thread. They became at last a byword among the people. Anybody wishing a term to express the preposterous would bring them in. Something ridiculous was as ridiculous as wealthy Abu and his slippers. Attired in these miserable things, which were inseparable from his public character, the celebrated businessman would go shuffling through the bazaar. One day he struck a singularly fortunate bargain. He bought a huge consignment of little crystal bottles from a man who was on the verge of bankruptcy. And then a few days later, he capped the deal by purchasing a large supply of rose oil from a bank, a uh, 
perfume merchant who was very hard on his luck. The combination made a really good business stroke, and everybody talked about it in the marketplace. Anybody else would have celebrated this occasion in the usual way, with a little banquet for a few business acquaintances. Abu Qasim, however, rarely spent any extra money on anything, and he decided to treat himself and went to the public baths for a soak and a steam. In the little anteroom, where the clothes and the shoes are left, he met another businessman, an acquaintance of his, who took him aside and delivered him a lecture on the state of his slippers. He had just set them down, and everybody could see how impossible they were. His friend spoke with great concern about how Abu was making himself the life laughing stock of the town and insisted that such a clever businessman ought to be able to afford a decent pair of slippers. Abu contemplated the slippers, and he said, You know, I have been thinking about this myself, but I do think they have a few more miles in them. And then he went in to enjoy his bath. While the miser was enjoying his rare treat, the caddy of Baghdad also arrived to take a bath. The caddy was a high judge. Abu Qasim finished before the exalted judge, and he returned to the changing room to dress. But where were his slippers? They had disappeared, and in their place, or almost in their place, was a different pair, beautiful, shiny, apparently brand new. Might these be a surprise present from that friend, Abu thought, who could no longer bear to see his wealthier acquaintance going around in worn-out shreds and wished to ingratiate himself with a prosperous man. Whatever the explanation, Abu Qasim put them on. These nice new slippers would save him the trouble of shopping and bargaining for a new pair. Reflecting thus and with a conscience clear, he left the baths and went home. When the judge returned to get dressed, there was quite a scene. His slaves hunted high and low, but they could not find his slippers. In their place was a disgusting pair of tattered objects, which everyone immediately recognized as the well-known footgear of Abu Qasim. The judge breathed out fire and brimstone, he was so angry, and sent for the culprit. Abu was immediately locked up because, of course, the court servant actually found the missing property on his feet. And it cost Abu plenty to get out of jail because the court, as well as everyone else, knew how rich he was. But at least he got his dear old slippers back. Sad and sorry, Abu Qasim returned home and in a fit of temper threw his treasures out of the window. 
they fell with a splash into the Tigris River, which crept muddily past his house. A few days later, a group of fishermen thought they had caught a particularly heavy fish, but when they hauled it in, what did they behold in their nets but the celebrated slippers of the miser? The hobnails, which Abu had used to repair his shoes as part of his tremendous economy, had ripped several gaps in the net, and the men were, of course, very, very angry about this damage. They hurled the muddy, soggy shoes through an open window, and this window just happened to be Abu Kasim's. Sailing through the air, his returning possessions landed with a crash on the table where he had set out in rows those precious crystal bottles so cheaply bought, which he was filling with rose oil. Now the glittering, perfumed magnificence was lying on the floor in a dripping mass of fragments. So much for his fantasy of a large prophet. Those wretched slippers, Abu Qasim cried. They shall do me no more further harm. And so saying, he took up a shovel, went quickly and quietly into his garden, and dug a hole there in order to bury the things. But it just so happened that Abu Qasim's neighbor was watching, naturally deeply interested in all that went on in the rich man's house next door. And he, as is so often the case with neighbors, had no particular reason to wish Abu well. That old miser has servants enough, he said to himself, and yet he goes out and personally digs a hole. He must have a treasure buried there. Why, of course, it's obvious. He needs this to be a secret. And so the neighbor hustled off to the governor's palace and informed against Abu Qasim, because at those times anything that a treasure seeker found belonged by law to the caliph, the high ruler and was subject to tax. Abu Qasim, therefore, was called up before the governor, and his story that he had only dug up the earth to bury an old pair of slippers made everyone laugh uproariously. Who ever heard of going to the trouble to bury an old pair of shoes? The more that Abu insisted, the more incredible his story became, and the guiltier he seemed. In sentencing him, the governor took the buried treasure into account and thunderstruck Abu Qasim heard the amount of his fine. Quite a hefty one. Now the man was desperate to get rid of the old slippers. He cursed those wretched slippers up and down, but how was he going to get rid of them once and for all? Then he had the thought to get them out of town somehow. So he made a pilgrimage into the country and dropped them into a pond far away. When they sank, sank, sank below the surface, he took a deep breath and felt a sweet sense of relief. Now, he thought, they were finally gone.
However, that pond was a reservoir that fed the town's water supply. And somehow the slippers swirled to the mouth of the pipe and stopped it up. The guards came to repair the damage, found the slippers, and of course recognized them, who wouldn't, and so reported Abu Qasim to the governor, this time for befouling the town's water supply. And so there he sat in jail again. He was punished with a fine far greater than the last. And what could he do? He paid. And he got those dear old slippers back again. These slippers had done him enough damage by God, Abu thought, and this time he was going to get even with them, so they should play no more tricks. He decided to burn them. But they were still wet. So he put them out on his balcony to dry. A dog on the balcony next door saw the funny-looking things, became interested, jumped over, and snatched a slipper. While the dog was playing with it, he tossed it into the air. And, oops, the slipper went sailing over the railing and fell down to the street, where it landed on the head of a woman who was passing by and knocked her down. The woman was, as it happened, pregnant, and she then miscarried. Her husband ran to the judge and demanded damages from Abu Qasim. Now, Qasim was almost out of his mind at the expense and the trouble and the mortification, but of course he was forced once again to pay. Before he tottered home from the court, a broke and broken man, Abu stood before the judge. He raised the slippers high, so solemnly and earnestly that the judge almost laughed at the absurdity of it. Please, Your Honor, begged Abu, do not hold me further responsible for the evils caused by these slippers. These cursed things have reduced me to beggary. The caddy felt that he could not refuse and granted the plea. Abu Qasim bought a new pair of slippers. So poor Abu Qasim, haunted in a sense by a pair of old shoes. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of a Stephen King movie, don't you think? I mean, King has these stories where objects that we think are innocent or friendly or simply inert suddenly become malevolent. malevolent. There we go. Kind of like Cassim's slippers. And we also have a lot of stories about people being blindsided, about something seemingly coming out of nowhere to plague them. This story certainly fits in that genre. Now we could look at what happens to Cassim and his slippers and read it as a simple morality tale. 
we have the rich miser who is not a good person, and so he has a run of bad luck, which he deserves, faces disgrace, loses his money, and we're all satisfied, and we all get the moral that avarice is bad. Bad things happen to people who love money too much and don't know how to share. Certainly, this is a theme in the story, and I do think it's an important message. If only more people would take it to heart, who knows what kind of world we would live in. But Cassim's story is pretty elaborate and outlandish to convey such a straightforward lesson. So we're missing the juice if we don't question it a little bit more closely. The miser's downfall is the result of an absurd chain of events that revolves around a pair of slippers. Slippers that almost seem to behave, don't you think, in a peculiar manner, as if they have a mind of their own. When Cassim tosses the beat-up old slippers out the window and they get caught in the nets of the fishermen and rip holes in those nets, we think, well, bad luck. And when he tries to bury the slippers in his backyard and is reported by his snoopy neighbor, we might still think the same thing, that these are unhappy, unlucky coincidences. But honestly, I mean, when the dog touches the slippers off the balcony and they hit a pregnant woman on the head and she has a miscarriage, please, something else is happening here. Cassim tries and tries to get rid of his old slippers and they keep coming back. They keep finding him like a loyal dog. So, what are the slippers? The clue is in the opening paragraph. The old slippers were inseparable from Cassim's public character. Indeed, they are so well known and so closely identified with him that every problem they create is immediately traced back to him. The miser is, in a sense, these miserable, nasty slippers. They are his persona, that well-cultivated sense of himself that he holds dear. Now, we have lots of stories where we talk about shoes in this fashion. Cinderella, for example, she's recognized because her foot is the foot that fits the glass slipper. And we also have a lot of homilies that connect shoes with identity. We say that you want to, if you want to understand somebody, you should walk a mile in their shoes. We talk about, you know, if the shoe fits, wear it. So shoes, in this instance, slippers, are a metaphor that gets used for an individual's way of being, for their way of life. So it's no problem that Kasim has slippers, and at some level, it's no problem that he has slippers that people recognize as being his. However, his are a kind of fetish for him. He cherishes them and what he thinks that he they say about him, and he is so attached, uh-oh, attachment, that he is blind to the message that they actually convey. This is an important point about personas. We generally all have them. We all have a public face that's a little bit different from our private self. But you can get lost in your persona. You can get so busy putting on a show that you forget who you actually are. 
And you can so deeply reject aspects of your being that you develop a lopsided view. In Kasim's case, he's passionate about the poverty of the slippers, and he insists that others recognize his vice, stinginess, as a virtue. He can't see that, in fact, it's a bad thing. Most of us suffer from this blindness to one degree or another. And the paradox or the irony is that oftentimes the thing that we are hiding from others is the thing that is most easy for others to see about us. I kind of shudder to think how that works in my case. So, the slippers are Kasim's persona, and he refuses to see the stinginess, that is the poverty within his wealth, preferring instead to call it business acumen or thrift. But, you say, he tries to get rid of the slippers, and they keep coming back long after he is ready to part with them. Why is that? Well, let's look at where the story turns. Abu Qasim is perfectly happy until he takes the wrong pair of slippers from the bathhouse. He takes the caddy's beautiful slippers because he's quick to assume that the other merchant who actually chastised him about his shoes honored him with the gift of a fine new pair of slippers in recognition of his business acumen. Abu felt that he deserved a continuous string of little gifts of good fortune, like the acquisition of the crystal bottles and the rose oil. And his continuous good fortune, he thought, was proof that he was right. So this mistake that he makes in the bathhouse sets the rest of the story in motion. He gets the wrong shoes. Now, perhaps somebody played a trick on Abu and moved his slippers. We don't really know. But the fact that the caddie's servants found the nasty slippers so easily suggests that Abu was ready for a new pair of slippers. Ready for a new pair of slippers, but he wasn't yet ready for a new sense of self. That slip, overlooking his old ones and taking the new one, revealed the height or the depth of his delusion, and put something powerful in motion. Abu was so blind to his stinginess that he actually convinced himself that there was no such thing. And you note he was glad to get a new pair of shoes, as long as he was going to get them for free. So it was going to take a solid dose of suffering to break through to Abu and to get him to see things in a different way. And he was then punished over and over again in the language that he best understood, money. C.G. Jung said that we experience the unconscious as fate. So what we don't recognize and understand about ourselves becomes the substance of what happens to us in the outer world. Abu Qasim doesn't see his stinginess. He doesn't see the poverty in his wealth. But he is made to see it through this repeated experience with the slippers. What concerns us, our desires and fears, our ideas and emotions, unite 
who and what we are with the events of outer life. Now we put our fate in motion through an uncountable number of tiny movements, barely conscious actions, and neglects. And this is the way that the plot of our life thickens. We can make changes, but because we don't have perfect consciousness, we are always in dialogue with the mysterious unknown, that is the unconscious element in our lives. What I'm talking about here is like the Hindu notion of karma, the effects of which are more complex than we can grasp. But the idea is that one's being in life circumstances are, developed, are determined by the sum total of the good and the bad that you do in your life. And this karma can be altered by conscious choices. As the story goes on, we see how his commitment to destroy the slippers grows. Each plan requires more conscious intention and involvement than the one preceding it. The first time around, he just throws them out the window. So, clearly, if that was the end of the whole experience, he got one fine, he throws the nasty slippers out the window, not even thinking about where they might land, and he's done with it, there would have been no change, right? But then he has to go a little further. He's got to bury them. And then he plans, he takes them out to outside to the outskirts of town. And finally then, he has the plan of burning them. But he's repeatedly foiled because he has to become just a little bit more frightened, just a little bit more humble, and he has to lose the money that fueled his delusion in the first place. Abu has to be broke and willing, nonetheless, to buy himself a new pair of slippers. There are numerous variations of this story and several different endings. In another version that you can find, Abu is required to take the slippers home, where he carefully stashes them in a closet, and then he goes out to buy new slippers for himself and a whole bunch of other people. The display of this newly found generosity pushes that moral message of greed that I was talking about. And while that's important, I prefer the ending that I used, which strikes, I think, a more ambiguous note. The judge releases Abu from responsibility for the slippers. So then we wonder who is the judge? Where did the slippers end up? And how much did Abu Kasim really learn from his experience? Well, I think that the judge, like the slippers, is fated. Fate, or you could call it karma. That outside regulating authority that's beyond the reach of our ego, but is nonetheless looking out for our personal development. And when we have the image of the judge, we're reminded that we don't bring about every event in our lives single-handedly. That is, our ego does not bring it all about second single-handedly. There are some open questions left about Abu and the slippers. We don't know for sure what becomes of him. And when I told this story at a mythological roundtable some months ago, it was pointed out that we have absolutely no confidence whatsoever that Abu actually learned anything. This person who heard the story said, well, how do we know that he doesn't go back to 
making more money, using the skills that he obviously had, and kind of ending up in the same place. And that's a good point. We don't know that. We never know for sure when changes are permanent in others. But while we aren't sure of what becomes of Abu, we've heard the story. And so, hopefully, we've all learned something here together right now. Next week, I'm going to tell another story from this collection called The King and the Corpse. It's a great story. It's going to take us a couple of weeks to tell it and unpack it. So I hope that you'll be able to join me for that. And I've had a lot of requests and questions about archived shows and when they're going to be available. And all I can tell you is that Radio Free Joshua Tree is enjoying such tremendous success and growth that there are lots and lots and lots of projects on the table. But never fear, archive shows will be available. That's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. If you have questions about today's program or mythology in general, you can find Myth in the Mojave on Facebook or feel free to email me at mythicmojo at gmail.com. You can find this story and many others like it online at www.catherinesavela.com. And I remind you that you are invited to join the High Desert Mythological Roundtable, which meets the last Tuesday of every month in the new Radio Free Joshua Tree Listening Lounge from 7 to 9 p.m. We are still deeply engaged in reading and telling and talking about Homer's Odyssey, which is a fantastic and very old story. So I hope you can join us. Special thanks to Travis Rosenberg for my theme music, to Rags and Bones for producing this show, and most of all, to you for listening. Please tune in next week for Part 1 of The King of the Corpse. And in the meantime, happy myth-making, and keep the mystery in your life alive.